Welcome to Future Imagined, a foresight podcast dedicated to future thinking, powered by MGS Insights. I'm Joe Lapore. I lead foresight for North America as part of the Mars Wrigley Global Foresight Team. Within these next few episodes, we are deep diving into the most influential topics for this decade to answer some of your most pertinent strategic questions like what behaviors can we expect from people? What new innovations will we see grow in adoption? And how should we as marketers and brand owners best prepare for these changes? What doesn't seem to change very much is marketing fundamentals, but consumers are shopping differently. They're engaging with brands in new ways or engaging with new brands. And the data that we get from these transactions is more granular, it's more robust, maybe slightly more confusing. So today we're going to deep dive into the expectations of brand owners coming into this next decade. For this conversation, we have a killer panel to help us deep dive across all facets of marketing from growth philosophies in a post-pandemic world, expectations in a traditional versus digital landscape, to one of our favorite topics at Mars, measuring success. I'm Kun Powell, Distinguished Professor of Marketing at Northeastern University, also the VP of Practice at the ISMS Marketing Science Association and the President-elect of the American Marketing Association. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. My academic specialization is marketing effectiveness, and I always love to talk about it. Hi, I'm Rose Gia. I head up growth marketing for one of Amazon's fastest growing businesses called Ultra Fast Grocery. And I'm super happy to be here and talk about all these awesome topics. Hi, I'm Martin Guerreria. I've been with Kantar about 10 years as part of the Brandsy team. Brandsy is a massive database of consumer interviews. Part of my job is to understand and use that data to really drive insight for our agency and for our clients. So we'll kick off straight into the first question, and it would be remiss of me not to start with a question about the pandemic and 2020 and everything that's happened. We've seen some really interesting responses from brands during this time and some advice from steadfast marketing gurus that seem to waver on what we've always thought about marketing. We hold some things true, like maintaining saliency no matter what. However, last year, in summary, it felt like the answer to what should my brand do was, well, it depends. (laughs) No more was the short-term ROI of marketing questioned than in 2020. So, Dr. Powles, how important was the focus on long-term versus short-term marketing in 2020? How disruptive was this year for marketers? My big advice to companies is always don't panic. (laughs) We've had disruptions before. So there's a standard advice that I have, and that doesn't depend. I mean, I came to the States in 97 for my PhD when the dot-com first wave came, which changed everything, right? You know, know, the product that you could offer, the the digital price, the, the place, the promotion. I think it's always very important to use the tried and true frameworks to make sense of the situation, look at the new incoming data, and then see what you can do. So, for instance, I just used the four piece framework. I'm an old school marketer, which I think is still very important. How do you put optimally your marketing budget? It really depends on your short-term marketing effectiveness. And the short answer is, if your short-term effectiveness goes up, you should spend more on marketing. If it goes down, like it did for lots of companies in the first few months of the pandemic, you should spend less on short-term marketing. But you can then really focus on where do you want to be in one or two years? How do you want to come out of this recession? 
And so we see lots of brands really taking a step back, uh, reconsider and actually focus more on long term than they used to do, partly because they couldn't activate for the short term, right? You're either your, your service was not available <laughs> or you had supply side uh, issues in the first two months of the pandemic. So, so short term activation wasn't really uh, called for, but I see brands doing wonderful things to kind of position or reposition themselves and, and, and reconsider their options. Yeah, so much to take away from that. And I'd love to expand on something that you mentioned there, which was the new adoption of behaviors that consumers have had during this time. And, you know, particularly in the online space, but even more broadly, as we come into this next decade and the catalyst that the pandemic had on consumer behavior, how much of this time is experimentation? Great question. So specifically when the bigger brands were either out of stock or slow to respond, this was the perfect opportunity for smaller brands or challenger brands, right, as I call them, to take a very proactive approach and basically look at new audiences and say, hey, you may have come to us the first time because your favorite brand was out of stock, but we're going to satisfy you fantastically and we want you to continue buying us again. Talking about putting some of that theory into practice and in that digital space, Rose, I'd love to hear about some of those changes in consumer behavior that the disruption has created. The pandemic definitely changed a lot of behaviors and online grocery adoption was something that was still relatively new prior to the pandemic. People were getting used to the idea. And of course, the pandemic accelerated all of that adoption because there was an inherent need to be able to do this in a safe manner online. But from our standpoint, we needed to make sure that we were always going to be addressing what the biggest concerns our customers had, which was how do I get my groceries in the most convenient way? During the pandemic, there were certain things that our customers needed. So let's focus on that. Let's use all of our digital means to be able to communicate that to our customers. But let's also think about the future in the sense of how do we make sure that customers understood the value of doing this online shopping that would allow them to think about it over time. And did you use it as an opportunity as well to do a little bit of innovation or experimentation and creating new user experiences? We really had to focus in on specific things. We had limited resources in terms of people. We had a limited marketing budget. So in terms of innovations, the way that we really went about it was the way we communicated. During the pandemic, we all of a sudden had an influx of customers that didn't really know what online grocery was, but just knew they had to do it. So we quickly produced a lot of landing pages that explained what is online grocery with Amazon? How do you quickly do this? We put it through social platforms because we knew that's where customers were communicating with one another and learning. And we also spent a lot of time on our CXs to ensure that as the customer is going through Amazon, they're quickly able to identify like, this is how you do online grocery. Here is the next steps. It becomes so intuitive for customers. It's just easier to do. A lot of customers understood the value. And so that being said, there were a lot of competitors in the space. Um, and so it became, you know, how do we drive awareness and how do we you know, for the first time, really think about what do we want to say to our customers in terms of, you know, why choose our brand over others? But two, how do we tie it to the broader kind of Amazon ecosystem? And so a lot of those things were kind of where we shifted our mind and really changed a lot of our focus. And that's kind of where I'm really excited about exploring in 2021. 
You guys did an absolutely fantastic job. And I think, you know, the proof is in the pudding, obviously in the sales results, but also in being ranked, I hope I'm saying this right, number one in the Brand Z study. Martin, I'm hoping that you can share with us a little bit more about, you know, particularly 2020 and the analysis that you did of the top 100 brands. How did the results differ from the prior years that you looked at? One of the surprising things that we found was actually when we looked at the total value of our global top 100 most valuable brands last year, we kind of expected there to be a a drop in brand value overall, but actually there was an increase. And it's looking likely that we'll see an increase again this year. That was surprising at the time, but when we started to rationalize that and think about it, it actually makes total sense because I think it shows that, um, you know, in times of uncertainty, consumers are looking to brands and businesses to provide a degree of certainty. But I think there are implications there for the marketing community as well in that now uh, in a in a sort of strange way is actually a, a fantastic time for marketers to exert even more of an influence on their businesses because these are incredibly valuable assets. And the way we've seen the world turn in the last 12 months, it's actually brought an even bigger spotlight to the value that that can bring, which I think is a bit ironic from where we expected things to move in the marketing and brand building community in the last 18 months. Yeah, I think a few of us were surprised by the results. And in particular, because global ad spend declined in 2020, I think it was an estimated 6.8%. Obviously, digital ad spend grew. So it does show that, you know, brand market is we're getting a little bit more savvy around where to invest and how to spend their marketing dollars best. Are there any of those types of strategies in particular that you noticed marketers sort of leaning into during that time that were successful? Yeah, I think there's been an obvious shift to the online world. That's a trend that is certainly here to stay. I think digital investment is something that we'll continue to see expand in terms of share of the marketing budget. I think that can be a bit of a red herring because I think that the goals of marketing remains the same, whether you're trying to build a brand or use brand to establish business success, you know, ultimately defining and establishing an advantage over the competition is the critical goal. I mean, within our ranking, we're seeing a real trend towards technology brands growing in value. But we're also seeing that it's not just the technology brands, it's brands that are embracing technology that are making strides. A fantastic example is Tesla. We haven't released our our brand value for Tesla yet this year, but I have a feeling it might be on the up. And I think the reasons for that are obvious. They've had a period of not making money. They got over that hill in 2020, ironically, and turned a profit for the first time. And that is because um, they have a a unique USP. They've been forward-looking for a while, and, and the time seems to have come for that brand now because of, um, partly because of the brand that they've established within uh, a, a sector that is that is irrevocably changing. And we all know the reasons why, um, and they're well ahead of the game in that regard. We talk about meaningful difference as being the formula for success. And we often see brands that have a perceived meaningful difference exceeding their current salience as being primed for growth. And both Monzo and Revolut would fall into that bucket. And Tesla absolutely falls into that bucket with automotive as well so you know i think our view is you know meaningful difference is the goal that's incredibly difficult to um, establish versus the competition and you could argue that it's actually an easier job to build salience once you've established that meaningful difference through literal spend and through you know more tactical activities around building profile but the 64 million dollar question literally in our rankings case is how do you establish that meaningful difference what is your usp why should i care as a consumer and why can you deliver that better than anyone else that's the key question 
I love the Tesla example. I feel like it's one of those ones where a lot of marketers hear it and they say, well, I make a chocolate bar. <laughs> so how can I compare to that? But I think, like you said before, it's a really great example of a brand that didn't make money for a very long time. And they were on a path based on a vision that was created that required a lot of trust from people to back it and to invest it. And it was a, a long, hard slog in a lot of ways for them, which takes me back to the point that you, Professor, made earlier around you know small brands. And we're seeing a lot more competition in the marketplace. And we talked about Tesla, but there are so many great startups at the moment that are really booming, not just in 2020, but more broadly over the last decade, as people are able to launch their brands through direct to consumer channels, through Amazon, through social commerce, through crowdfunding. How is that changing the landscape for big brands or in how brands can best compete? So as Martin said, once you have that differentiation, you still have to spend, but the spend can be much more efficient because you can now showcase your happy customers. <laughs> and so as a consultant, I always recommend some mixture of offline and online. The three things I really like about digital is number one, you typically serve an ad based on a consumer action. Because I search for something, it's because I'm at a certain website, it's because I'm browsing a category on Amazon. It's a lot less disruptive to me as a consumer if you do it well. Number two, of course, the consumers take actions. You don't have to depend only on what they say, but you can actually see what they do. And you can actually use that in a good way to come up with some more digital version of awareness and consideration metrics that we traditionally have done with surveys. How are you tracking with awareness? How are you tracking with consideration, satisfaction, differentiation? And then how can you set these things in motions and also maintain them? And of course, the third thing what I love about online is how easy it is to experiment. The proverbial A-B test, it's just much more convenient to try things out, even tweak a little thing in the message and then see what comes out. And so smaller brands have completely embraced these tools, in my experience. I still like to have somebody with a gray beard in the room <laughs> to kind of say, hey, you're focusing on a subset of a subset of marketing communication. Also think about your competitive landscape, your price and your product and how that goes. Since you brought up digital marketing in particular, I'd love to ask you a question on that because obviously evidence-based marketing is the best kind of marketing, but when you're overloaded with the evidence or the data, what is the best way for marketers to sort of approach the copious amounts of consumer proof points that they can obtain these days? I mean, as managers, we have to make decisions with imperfect data. And sometimes it helps, sometimes not. You can get five-minute interval data, but have you laid the link between data points and your heart metrics, like sales or profits? If your engagement goes up by 10%, you know, where's the money? <laughs> and then I find that brands that do that, they're a lot less frustrated when certain companies suddenly change their metrics and say, oops, I'm so sorry. Instead of 20 minutes, you know, uh, people only watch a video for 10 minutes, or instead of an engagement of X, it's only half of that. If you're a brand that already have put this in the right kind of funnel or consumer journey perspective, and you know how much bang for your buck you get from, you know, an influencer and so forth, then you're a lot less upset when they say, sorry, you know, we completely overestimated our followers. I think the best brands really also use technology, not just in their products, but also in how they do their marketing. And by the way, I was at the New York Stock Exchange two years ago when Brand Z had their big party and announced Amazon as the, <laughs> the first time that it won the most valuable brand, right? And so you can see that 
uh, if you use technology both in your product and in your marketing, then I can think that you can really have a winning combination. And, and it's very important to then figure out, and we have great models to show which metrics actually matter to you and which metrics are nice to have, right? The vanity metrics that people talk about, but don't really help you to get more insight and specifically not to act on it, to do something different. I hope you enjoyed the sandwiches at our event, by the way, Kuhn. One thing I would add is I think the best, not just marketers, but researchers, insights people, don't start with data. They start with hypotheses and they test them with the right data. You know, any client that's out there thinking, oh, we need data, we need data, we need data. Why? What is the hypothesis you're actually trying to test? What are you trying to prove? And then you seek the right data to test and prove or disprove those hypotheses. I think that's a really important point because, as, as Kuhn quite rightly said, if you want data, there's plenty of data out there and you can wrap yourself up in knots very easily by trying to examine and analyze all of it before you make any decision. But, you know, think about what is the question you're trying to answer and then yeah. seek the right data and the right sources to be able to answer those questions, basically. That's the reason that I called my first book. It's not the size of the data, it's how you use it. It had problems getting to lots of spam folders because of that. <laughs> but this was the kind of the beginning of the big data movement. And I'm like, come on. I mean, why would you want to get this big data just because it's out there if you can't even use the small data you have currently to make better decisions? And so starting with the question, formulating an hypothesis, and then at the end of the analysis, really making sure you communicate it in the right way to decision makers, of course, that's absolutely crucial. Yeah, and holding yourself to account as well when your hypothesis has been debunked <laughs> and moving on and trying something you. So, Rose, I'd love to hand over to you um, in particular on the point around, you know, what good looks like for a marketer, because um, in preparation for this podcast, I was looking at some of the marketing trends from 2010, sort of looking back at the prior decade. And, you know, there was this expectation of this boom in social video and advertising through the video platform, which has obviously come to fruition and it enables marketers to really engage with their consumers. However, you're sort of constantly still trying to adapt to some of these platforms that have been around for almost a decade. So I'd love to get your take on that. How do you adapt as a marketer and how do you hold yourself to account on some of those hypotheses that don't pan out? So whenever we're doing a campaign or running a marketing initiative, I always focus in on thinking about it like an investment strategy. So we have a portfolio of things that we want to do. We have a finite amount of resources, including manpower and including you know investment dollars. Where does it make sense to put there? And then how do we shift it over time to ensure that our strategy is still on and our goals are still being achieved, but we're not pigeonholed to a specific metric per se or a specific channel? Just because we had committed to some specific thing. Having that investment mindset allows my team to really think outside the box. And the way that we think about it is we try to tie everything back to, you know, in our case, like what is that return on investment? But it could be anything. It could be based on the number of customers that we're trying to get to place an order, which is a lot more lower funnel conversion driving. Or it could be, you know, this action was able to influence and lift further actions down the line. By thinking about it like an investment, it allows my team to really say, we want to put in this upfront cost because we believe that doing this thing today is going to get us the metrics that we need down the line in, you know, X number of months or X number of weeks. And this allows us to then say, we can measure that over time and we can work on both short-term successes 
but then still have that runtime to continue that growth. And that's a beautiful segue to a slight change of topic that I'd love to dive into. And Rose, some of the work that you've done around Renaissance marketing, which is an absolutely brilliant concept. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you see the skill sets of marketers evolving into this next decade. This is a passion of mine. I was mulling around on like what the future generation of marketers should be. And I realized I'm actually bringing it back to how it sort of used to be. I call it the Renaissance marketer because I wanted to talk about how back in the days, the Renaissance thinkers were multidisciplined. They were artists, scientists, architects, mathematicians, like you name it. But the reason that they were able to think so broadly in each of their fields was because they were able to take learnings and innovations from other disciplines and bring it into their own. When marketing first started, it used to be we were all sort of generalists. Like we had to learn about everything from financial understandings to how our customers thought to what would be the CX of something. But over time, we've all become very specialized. I wanna bring back that thinking of Every marketer should be very well disciplined in marketing, but they should also understand how finances work to be able to tie back between the things that we're doing from a marketing perspective and how it drives the growth of the company. How does this tie back to top line? How does it help with bottom line? And really be able to take all of those learnings from other disciplines and apply that to marketing. We have so much data at our disposal. It's like a pendulum. They went from being all about art to all about data, and we're losing that human aspect. Let's be honest, our customers are all humans. They need both the emotions and have that connective tissue with the brands, which oftentimes a lot more art than it is science, but they also want the real real. Bringing this kind of Renaissance marketer concept is a way for me to tease out what's already inside every marketer and allow them to innovate the marketing discipline for the next generation. Yeah, that's brilliant. I think you're so right, in particular in Mars, what we've noticed, even retrospectively in ourselves, is that we have lent so much into the science and the analysis. Like a lot of marketers, I think, lost that marketer's intuition, that gut feeling that tells you, you know, when something's right or not based on your experience. Martin, I know that in the Brands report, you touched on one of my favorite topics, which is the resilience that brands are starting to build in coming through times of disruption. And part of that would be building this wide ranging skill set to be able to adapt into different situations and landscapes. Absolutely. I think um, building on what Rose was saying, I completely agree with the point about art and science. The more that we can use data in a sensible way, the more that we can connect with consumers to understand their opinions, the greater the probability is that those gut feel decisions are primed for success. So I think that's the nuanced difference. You know, as we said, losing touch with the consumer and consumer needs is a problem. And ultimately, insight without insight informing decisions is a major problem. I think as Rose was saying, where we see this disconnect within companies between insights and the brand team and the marketing team, that's where we find problems. There is no point in having an insights team if they don't have a connection and a meaningful connection to the brand team and the marketing team. And it's the businesses that are well connected that we see primed for success. I think in the most successful businesses, strategy comes first. 
then it's about KPIs. Again, we see a number of clients sometimes who are fixated on KPIs without necessarily making them linked to what they're actually trying to achieve. I, I just, if I can respond to that, right? I couldn't agree more with both Rose and Martin that the combination of art and science is so important. When I started about 25 years ago, I got most pushback for the so-called creatives in an organization. They're like, oh no, the bean counters are coming. And I'm like, but wouldn't it be fantastic that the creative that you know really differentiated your brand and won all the candidates Golden Lion Awards actually made a huge difference in the business too. Wouldn't it be fantastic to be able to show that to the bean counters and then you get more money, right? <laughs> because you're encouraged to do more of that. Earlier in the day, I heard a wonderful conversation with the president of CBS. She's now in pilot stage and so she has to watch about three to four pilots every day and then crank the data in the evening and the next day decide which of these shows are going to go. And so she's very data-driven, but at the same time, she says, my instinct is very important. There's this one show that she really likes because she thinks it will appeal to a very niche audience that is very valuable to CBS. And it has gone to three tests and always got horrible scores from the audience. <laughs> but she's like, I'm going to test it again. I'm going to tweak some things. And ultimately, you do have to combine this with your instinct. I think for me, it goes back to that old phrase, a camel is a horse designed by a committee. If you ask too many people with the wrong expertise, you end up with a camel when you wanted a horse. And, you know, we've been having internal discussions at Cantar relatively recently around the look and feel of our brand. I will have an opinion, but it is not a useful opinion. Ask the design team. They are the experts with the right expertise to inform this decision. So um, I think expertise and asking the right people the right things, as well as recognizing your own business's limitations and recruiting the right people is also really important. You know, when I was talking about like the Renaissance marketer and being multidisciplined and being able to connect the dots, one of the things that I realized as I was asking a bunch of marketers was how are you supposed to do that when the finance experts, the data experts, the research experts all have biases about what they believe marketers should know and do. And so one of the challenges that I've taken on with my small team that's building Renaissance Marketer is working directly with like CFOs, COOs, and like people that are leaders of that function and asking them very point blank, what are you looking to understand from your marketing team? What are the metrics you care about the most that if a marketer came to you with these metrics, you will then say, go crazy. Marketing has for a while been kind of pigeonholed in a way where we're not speaking the same language as these experts and we're not taking into account a lot of their feedback because we're not translating that to marketing speak. So I'm hoping that with these new templates and new ways of talking to these functions, we're actually going to be able to connect dots between these functions a lot closer. That's what marketers do is we are essentially the connective tissue of an organization. We just haven't been speaking the right language for a while. So I, I had a, a quick follow-up on that one. This is absolutely important, Rose. I'm so happy you're doing this. Uh, I teach often to a mixed marketing finance audience. And um, whenever I'm in this group, I ask the finance folks what their biggest frustration is with marketers. And, and so I'm, this is all the budget negotiations, right? And they say every year marketing comes to us with some shiny new thing that we want more to spend more money on. But then we ask, so where can we cut your budget? They're like, no, everything is absolutely necessary. And so you really don't gain trust like this. You gain trust by saying, look, we understand your language. We understand what's important to you. And, uh, and this is how we're better going to reach our financial objectives also. And, and we know that this is very effective. Let's do more of that for now until our competition catches on, right? Because everything is temporary, every advantage. And, and we can do less of this for now. 
are here are some complete concrete metrics that we can do more or less of. And then I also always turn around to the finance folks. And my, my favorite marketing budget question is the following. If some person is amazingly creative in your company and come up, comes up with a campaign that's three times as effective than any campaign you have ever done before, should you increase or decrease your marketing budget? And all the marketing people in the room say, increase your budget. All the finance people in the room say, decrease your budget because now we can hit the sales, sales objectives with less money. <laughs> and then what I do, I'm an econometrician, right? So I derive the profit function of the firm and I show mathematically that the marketers are, wrong, are right. So, so if you are get more effective, if you have a very creative campaign that you can show is better, then you should increase your spending on marketing. And so I think there's something that both kind of sites can learn from each other. And it's, it's absolutely crucial to get them in a conversation. Reminds me of one of my favorite quotes, which is credit for shaping the future belongs only to those who act from Alison Sander, one of my favorite futurists. You know, sometimes the people that act are not the marketers. It's the CFO that's going to sign off on your new innovation line and your capital. So, you know, really connecting into the parts of the business that are going to be influential is so important. I'd love to end on one last question for everyone. One of the hot topics at the moment for marketers and brand owners is around brand trust because consumers are much more scrupulous and critical of brands. As we think about how important putting people ahead of profits is for the consumer and how important building trust is, what is your advice for brand owners and marketers coming into this very important upcoming decade for how to be most effective, but also how to be most genuine with consumers? It's always been customer first understanding what is it that your customers needs and wants are and that's always going to be changing but then knowing how you can address those needs which also means you need to innovate and change with your customer demand that's always going to drive and lead to profits so putting customers front and center in everything that you do how you think about things is always going to get positive effects very hard to win very easy to lose trust in brands classically would tend to relate more to product delivery and delivery on promises but we did a huge piece of analytics work last year with our analytics praxis looking at the depth of data we have going back 20 odd years on brands now and we've seen that product is still important but we're seeing more and more that behavior is becoming more influential so not only does your brand and your product actually deliver whether it's a service or it's a hard and fast FMCG product are you practicing what you preach are you able to deliver sustainability and critically if you tell me that you're able to deliver sustainability are you actually delivering it in practice trust is important for any brand and will continue to be so but um, that need for transparency and behavior change absolutely is going to be important it's much easier to lose trust these days because your customers know a lot more everything what you do also what your managers do this is information that the customer will hold you to I mean, one of the cases I wrote was about the Nike Dream Crazy campaign with Colin Kaepernick. Every time you discuss it in class, you have people saying, yeah, but look what Nike is doing <laughs> for other things, right? And do they really kind of, you know, walking the talk and do they really kind of practice what they preach? In this world of a lot more information available to everybody, it's just, you know, absolutely crucial that you review everything you stand for, what your separate businesses stand for. Live your principles as a person and as a company. Marketing is an old practice, foundationally. We've been doing it for a long time, since the Industrial Revolution, in fact. And there is so much that still holds true today. 
evidence-based marketing, balancing the short-term with the long-term, delivering on your brand promise, even trusting your marketing instinct. But importantly, as we all think forward towards 2030 and this new decade we've commenced innovating in, there is still a lot to learn. As you heard today, marketing is so much more than just selling stuff. It can be a powerful way to positively connect with people and impact your entire business. As the panel said today, there is so much impact that we can make if we put the user first, create a hypothesis, and think like an investor. This is Joe. Until next time, stay curious. Stay curious.